conversations going, so um, we might just cease them for now, though, if that's okay, and continue them afterwards. Uh, we're going to bring you the word of uh, the Lord from the book of John. John, New Testament, John chapter 14. And we're going to be reading from verse 15 to 24. So if you want to find that and follow along with that um, as I read, that would be great. This is the word of God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. <clears throat> but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Father, for our reading um, today. My father, calling him Craig publicly might have seemed weird, but I call him dad, father, daddy-o, as he is in my phone. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. If you are a friend, uh, family member, or if you are a visitor, uh, we're glad that you're here uh, gathering with us to, to worship the resurrected Jesus. Uh, I would also extend um, our invitation to come back next week as we celebrate six years of God's grace uh, to this church here in the northern Gold Coast region. The Lord has been very kind to us, and we just want to celebrate and remind ourselves of all His grace that has been at work. So please come back. Uh, and I would encourage you, as, as we continually, um, as, as more people come and gather, um, may, that, that might mean you aim for arrival time at 9.15, um, just because of parking being a little bit further away. So aim for 9.15, treat yourself to a nice stroll as you come here, and then we're ready to worship at 9.30 um, to celebrate our Lord Jesus. Well, let me have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into uh, the text this morning. Our Heavenly Father, what a delight it is this morning that you have chosen to reveal yourself through your word to us, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can receive these words, and that they would lead to life in us. We pray that you would accomplish all that your word sets out to do this morning. May the meditation of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable to you. In your precious name, amen. We are continuing the series uh, of John. We're in part two of this, uh, this series. And um, as we look in the Gospel of John, when we say the word gospel, we're talking about good news. Um, that around 2,000 years ago, a man named John, uh, who was a disciple of Jesus, wrote an account of Jesus' life so that by encountering these truths, we might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you would have life in His name. The section we find ourselves in is towards the end of Jesus' life. We're in the last, these last couple weeks, we have been spending time in a place called the Upper Room, the night before Jesus is about to be betrayed and died, uh, to be killed, sorry. He is pouring out His love to His disciples and extending Himself to them in a display of love and affection. Now, the disciples, with Jesus' departure being imminent, are understandably troubled. Uh, this is the one who they have loved um, this past couple years. This is the one who has walked beside them, being with them, and he is now leaving. And so they're troubled. Jesus has given them words of comfort, saying, believe in me. I've got a place where I am going. I will come and prepare a place for you, and I'll bring you there. Jesus also comforted them by saying, the work that I've been doing, you will carry on. 
You're not going to be unemployed just sitting around waiting. You've got a job to do. And we, find, we found from last week that great work of announcing the good news of the gospel, seeing people pass from death to life. And this week, we see the, the power that's going to enable that work. The question is, you know, would these disciples really be able to carry on the work by themselves? Uh, if you're familiar with who the disciples are, they're not exactly the, the top you know, pick of the crop. Um, they're an odd bunch, like many of us. They're not the best nor the brightest, and they've relied on having Jesus beside them these past three years. So how are they going to survive if they simply go it alone? Jesus says in this passage that He's going to give them the Holy Spirit to help them. And we'll see the truth that the Spirit inside of them will be better than the Jesus beside them. To walk through this, um, we will ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? He's the divine helper from God who will dwell within you. What will He do? He will minister truth and show the love of the Father and the Son to you. And then what does it mean for us? So firstly, who is the Holy Spirit? He is the divine helper from God who will dwell within you. Look with me in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, if you've read the verse 15 before, you might have read it in a context of what would maybe come as like a bit of a warning strike, a bit of an initial uh, shot that says, hey, if you love me, you better keep my commands. The context of this passage, before we look at the assessment test of loving and obeying God, we must put it firstly in its context as words of comfort to troubled disciples. This is a relationship between love and obedience and how they relate to Jesus. So firstly, notice in the room that, notice, Judas is no longer in the room. The ones that are left in the room that Jesus is speaking to here are his beloved disciples, who presumably, and by all accounts, love him in return. Secondly, in this passage, Jesus is going to make some clear distinctions between those who will be given the Holy Spirit and those who cannot receive him, verse 17. So once again, these disciples are presumably are the ones who are going to be receiving the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, working off the understanding that they do love Jesus, albeit not perfectly, Jesus gives them this word of hope. You will keep my commandments. That's future tense language. That's looking forward. Jesus is saying, and he's giving them this indication, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's a good news for people who may be wondering, are we able to obey Jesus? Are we going to be able to walk the path and live out the truth that He has commanded us to do? Jesus is saying, yes, you will be able to. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus wants His disciples to be encouraged. He wants them to know that they um, will and will have to keep His words, that His Spirit will empower them for this end. Well, how on earth are they going to, without Jesus' help beside them, going to keep His commands? Well, that's where He says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit, the divine helper who will lead you into truth and will dwell in your hearts. The first thing you learn about the Holy Spirit here is that the Holy Spirit is a person, a divine person. You notice that He's referred to as a Him in verse 17. For you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Now, the Holy Spirit isn't like some mystical um, force that you would see on Star Wars, nor is he like that energy connecting Mother Nature like Awa from Avatar. The Holy Spirit isn't just some kind of ethereal mist that hovers around, but is an actual person, the divine third person of the Trinity. The Council of Nicaea in 325 described the Holy Spirit by saying, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's the divine person to be worshipped and glorified. He's to be obeyed and honoured. In the Bible's broader teachings, we see the Holy Spirit teaches and instructs. He comforts and guides. The Holy Spirit can be grieved and you can sin against the Holy Spirit. You can't sin against the force, but He's a person. 
Now, I stress this personal nature of the Holy Spirit because Jesus is about to say that the, this, this helper that he's getting is, is another helper. So I'm going to give you another helper, he says. So this isn't just like some extra force they're getting. They're getting someone like him. That word another means of the same kind or the same type. His disciples, think about it, have had Jesus, the divine Son of God, with them, the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you someone like me, another counselor, another helper. He's going to be just like me, but in another sense, distinct from me. He'll be God. He'll be like that to you. Now, if you have ever scratched your head at the Trinity, you're in good counsel. You're in good company. Part of the joys of comprehending the Trinity is simply to enjoy comprehending the Trinity. Delight in it. Seek to understand it. Use the language the Bible does. But here, this helper, this other helper is coming, one who is like Jesus. Jesus has been their present advocate, strengthening and encouraging them, comforting and being their counselor in times of trouble. Jesus isn't leaving his beloved disciples with some strange babysitter. That would cause them to be concerned. Can we trust this person coming? He's familiar. He's a helper who's marked by the same love and devotion as Christ has for them. And since he has the same divine essence, it would just be like having Jesus around. Jesus going won't be a net loss for the disciples. He's sending another helper, one who is like him. It's highly relational. Who's the Holy Spirit? He's divine. He's a person. He's a helper. Now, depending on your translation, when it described another helper, you might have had a different word. In fact, if you look at many different translations, there are um, lots and lots of words that you're trying to define what this word, parakletos, is. Helper, advocate, counselor. So the word essentially means to, to call alongside. Someone who comes alongside to call to one's aid. When you think counsellor, don't think camp counsellor. Um, think legal counsellor. D- don't think marriage counsellor. Again, think legal advocate. You have someone who come beside you to, to present your case and your cause. Older translations use the word comforter. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. You, you might hear the word comforter and, and think of a snuggie. Um, Holy Spirit's not, and some people treat the Holy Spirit like just a big snuggie. They put around him and give him all this fuzzy feeling. No, the Holy, that, that word comforter had a richness to it. And I think the ESV here translates helper. Because friends, we are the ones who are in need of help. We aren't to think for a moment that we are living our own project and the Holy Spirit helps us to achieve what we want to achieve as if he's just helping us as an inferior. No, no, we are the ones desperate and helpless. We need a helper to empower us to do the works that Jesus has called us to do. So he's a helper to come alongside us. Where is he going to do this work from? If Jesus is going to the Father, where will the Spirit do his work from? You see that in verse 17? He will dwell with you and he will be in you. So he's coming to make his home with you. He's coming to make his home with you. If someone comes around your house to then dwell and live with you, presumably someone has invited them there. If no one's invited them, they're called squatters, and you have rights to kind of evict them. Well, who has invited this Holy Spirit to take up residence in the hearts of his disciples? Well, Jesus has. Now think about the confidence that you can have um, in bringing a request to someone, I think sometimes the confidence you have in someone answering a request in the positive is dependent on the person asking. Think about this for a moment. Who is the person asking the Father for this comforter? Jesus Christ, the beloved Son. So we have confidence that Jesus, the King of Kings, the Son of God, is taking a heavenly request to the Father to say, would you give these disciples the Spirit? of truth. Would you grant these disciples to have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in their lives? It's going to take up residence in their hearts. So far, the presence of God has, has dwelt in what you might call um, temporary accommodation. He's been presented and manifested in tents, in tabernacles, in the temple itself, most clearly in the person Jesus Christ. But, but now, of all the places that he's going to choose to dwell, he's choosing a bunch of people like you and me. 
You might well say, my heart isn't exactly the Sofitel. I'm the Airbnb place that, that barely gets a rating. And you're saying the Holy Spirit's going to come and dwell within me? Have you ever wondered if this God is put off by you? Condition of the house of your heart? Well, the Holy Spirit knows what he's getting himself into. He knows your heart better than you do. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. That doesn't put the Spirit off. Thomas is notoriously doubting. That doesn't put the Spirit off either. See, these weaknesses, these fragilities, these frailties that we have in the human experience, the Holy Spirit is acutely aware of. He's not depending on you having a five-star hotel to, to come set up shop. Actually, he does his best work with weakness. People who need houses of hearts in need of renovation. And he'll come, and this is when he gets to work. He's, he does his dwelling, changing, and restoring, and healing work as he comes to live amongst us. He's going to make himself known, verse 17. And I think dwelling and knowing is, is, is related. It's hard to have someone dwell amongst you and not get to know them better. We had the joy two years ago of having Brendan come and live with us in our house. We got free sing-alongs and um, a built-in babysitter. Who sometimes um, uh, he was very patient with the children. The children um, helped grow his sanctification. But as Brendan lived with us, there was a joy in him dwelling with us and a joy of knowing him more, spending more time with him, delighting with him. Now, I think that's what happened when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. What do you do? You start to know him. You start to know God more. Previously, he might, was an, he might have been an idea. Previously, he might have been the faith of your parents. Previously, he was that person spoken about in RI class. But now the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you. You begin to know him relationally, experiencing Jesus Christ himself, God the Father, contained, related, connected to the Holy Spirit. We get to enjoy him as we commune with prayer. His spirit dwells in our hearts. We get to know him more through his, through, we know Jesus more through his word, bringing truths to life. As we do, we, we get to experience more of the Father's love and see more of the Son. That's what verse 21 gets at. So who is this Holy Spirit? Well, he is God. He is a person. He is our helper. And he dwells within us. Now, notice that this Holy Spirit isn't given to just all people, verse 17. So we have to see the contrast here. The world, however, won't receive the Spirit since it cannot see Him or know Him. The world is that moral order that's set against God. Those who do not take God at His word, but rather reject His word, rebel against it. We've seen um, glimpses in the Gospel of John how the world responds to Jesus. Even if they gather around for a moment, ultimately they push away from Jesus and His words. They don't know the Father, and so they don't recognize the Son. They aren't loving towards Jesus, and so they aren't receptive to His Spirit. So not everyone has received the Holy Spirit. That's important because, again, it's just reminding us that the Holy Spirit is not just some animating force, the, 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 the peace of God that dwells inside every human being. That kind of New Age spiritualism isn't the teaching of the Bible. It's unique to those who love and obey Jesus' word. Now, this isn't to say that the Holy Spirit is inactive towards the world. In fact, we'll see in a, in a week or two, the part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So he has an internal witness to his beloved people, and he has an external witness to the world. But here in this moment, these disciples are being told by Jesus, the Holy Spirit's coming. He's coming to dwell amongst you. He's coming to fill you. As you receive this helper, he will show you the love of the Father and the Son. That's comforting words. So now what does this do? This is the divine helper from God to dwell with us. Then what, secondly, what does the Holy Spirit do? What's his job description? We're going to tea, a foundation is laid today that we'll, we'll tease out over the coming weeks. The first thing he does is he brings truth to bear on your heart. What does the Holy Spirit do? He brings truth to bear on your heart. You see how he's referred to in verse 17 as the spirit of truth. 
J.C. Ryle says, It is his special office to apply truth to the hearts of Christians, to guide them into all truth, and to sanctify them by the truth. So the Spirit works in the same manner that Jesus works. That is, to be a truth teller, to bring truth to bear upon people's lives. This bearing of truth is more than just a transfer, a transfer of information. But rather, again, it's meant to be deeply personal, deeply relational. The, the Holy Spirit isn't like some teacher giving you a pop quiz each day to see if you score well. No, no, He's the very presence of Christ ministering to you, mediating the truth of God to you. He's going to take the truth of Jesus that these disciples would have heard and that we, by implication today, have been taught from His Word, and he's going he's gonna to help massage those things down deeper into our souls. If we were to have a participation round now and I asked you, hey, raise your hands if you would like the truth of God to settle a little deeper in your soul. I imagine you would all raise your hands, but that's a hypothetical. You don't have to do it. Anyone here need the truth of Jesus to, to settle a little deeper in your heart? Any of you understand objective truths, propositions about Jesus, but sometimes feel like they just deflect off your heart and they don't make their way down, the Holy Spirit comes to take the truths, the spirit of truths, and, and, and kind of bury them deeper in our hearts so they kind of form us and shape us, capture us. There's two main areas I think that the Spirit does this truth work. Um, Tim Keller kind of pointed them out as um, elements of fighting against accusation and, and fighting condemnation. So he'll speak truth to, to these disciples to fight off accusation. So, so when condemnation comes to our hearts because of sin and, and we feel hopeless, the, the Spirit actually steps up and speaks up and say, no, Jesus has paid for that sin. You are in the clear. You'll notice this kind of advocating work is the same work that Jesus does that John will describe in 1 John 2. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate is the same word for helper. Jesus has the same function here as the Holy Spirit. One, doing it from heaven, the Holy Spirit doing it here in our lives. He's our legal defense, media and his presence. No more condemnation. The price has been paid. What does that mean for us? It means no more beating up yourself when you get things wrong. No more trying to atone for your sin by, by working harder, by promising more, by doing better in order to get out of the weight of sin. No amount will be enough. Jesus has already done it, and, and he'll continue, the Spirit's going to continue to point our hearts to the truth that when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant what he said. We as Christians need to receive that truth. Let's settle in. We have an advocate who steps, who comes to our, beside us, do our defense. Bethany Barnard's new song, All Sufficient Merit, it sings this, All Sufficient Merit, shining like the sun, a fortune I inherit by no work I have done. My righteousness I forfeit at my Savior's cross, where all sufficient merit did what I could not. It is done. It is finished. No more debt I owe, paid in full, all sufficient merit, now my own. You've got the Holy Spirit, you have the righteousness of Christ. The debt has been paid. He has a ministry of truth against accusations that say, more needs to be paid for this sin. That's the first way he ministers his truth. The well, second way he ministers truth is to fight temptations. So there's, there's external and internal battles that we face temptation-wise. Uh, each day, for the life of a Christian, the, the temptations that will come your way can, can maybe feel like those war movies when there's a soldier who has to run from one dugout to another, and there's enemy fire coming, and there's barbed wire, and it's at nighttime. That's the kind of experience of living the Christian life. Well, Spirit says, Spirit says helps us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. There's that internal sense that, that you shouldn't partake of sin. That's the Holy Spirit telling you no, seeking to remind you of your status as a beloved child of God who wants you to treasure Jesus, who wants you to glorify the Father, who wants you to walk in obedience. 
When we want to help ourselves to more things, the Spirit helps us be content with what we have. When we want to counsel our soul with thoughts of revenge or payback or getting even, He counsels us to forgive and entrust to God. When we want to comfort our souls with fleshly lusts, He'll comfort us with the affections of Christ. When we want to advocate our own self-righteousness as grounds for Jesus' love to us, He'll advocate for the righteousness of Christ. You see, those who love Jesus keep His Word and have His Spirit. Friends, it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can say no to temptation. We keep His Word, we walk in obedience. Begs the question, though, how long will the Holy Spirit keep this ministry up for? Some of us, he's got a pretty big task, doesn't he? I'm talking about myself. Uh, if you haven't ever wondered if this Holy Spirit gets tired of interceding for you or the, uh, Jesus gets tired interceding for you, maybe you just haven't realized the depth of your sin enough. The thought experiment must take place at least some point in the Christian's life, I assume. Oh, yeah, that's Darren again, sinning. You should have a loyalty card. But what's the Holy Spirit doing? Advocating, interceding. He's not worn out. He doesn't tire. He's not losing steam. He knew what he was getting himself into. And listen, if you're here, which you are, this side of eternity, there is still work to do. And you'll be, the Holy Spirit will continue his advocating work on your behalf before the Father every single day until you are called home or until Jesus returns. Notice in verse 16, he says, He will be with you forever. Now, don't be put off by that. Some people in your life who will be with you forever, you, that hearing that someone's going to stick with you forever isn't a, words of joy, but words of terror. You know, but this, this is not words of terror. This is words of joy. Jesus may be going, but the Spirit is coming to stay. So no matter where we are, no matter what is happening to us, the Spirit will never leave us. To have help for a short period of time might be beneficial, but if it runs out, then what hope would we have? Alternatively, to have him for an indefinite period of time but have it conditional upon our performance would also be quite a hopeless situation. But this helper is going to be there forever. I think Jesus is wanting these disciples to understand the certainty that he has going to heaven to prepare a place for them is the same certainty that the Spirit's help will be given to them to get them there. Ephesians 4.30 says we've been sealed until the day of redemption, guaranteed by the King. Holy Spirit ain't going anywhere. He'll be with you forever. I don't know what your trial is this morning. I don't know what your temptation is. I don't know what your struggle is. I'm not sure what your difficulty is. But in all those cases, in all those categories, the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, He will not leave you. He's with you. He's digging in there with you. You're not a lost cause. Holy Spirit will be with you forever. Well, who is he? He's the divine helper who brings truth to bear on our lives and dwell with us. What will he do? Well, he's going to bring the truth to Christ to bear on our lives and show us the love of the Father. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, Jesus is quite clear in this passage, I think, about one of the ways what this means for us. I think Jesus is clear in ways in which our world is not. I think plenty of people want to claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, what they mean by having a personal relationship with Jesus is that they mean they have a personal and private relationship with Jesus that nobody else gets access to, that nobody else gets to speak into, that nobody else gets to assess or consider. What it means for them and Jesus is exactly what they think it means. It's just them and Jesus on their terms, how they want. But, but Jesus is much more loving than that, isn't he? If you have entered a personal relationship with Jesus, Jesus actually gets to dictate the terms of what that relationship looks like. And here, a personal relationship with Jesus means no less. It means more, but no less than loving him and keeping his commands. You see, such love will show itself in obedience. It's all through this passage. Look at 14.15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 14.21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
14.23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 14.24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So loving him is connected and related to obeying him. I think loving him leads to obeying him. It's the soil in which the fruits of obedience grow. The love from God begins, our love then responds, and it gives rise to obedience. To, to love Jesus, as John Piper says, is, to not, is, is not about doing excellent things, but rather a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. It is the result of delighting in an excellent Savior that gives rise to doing excellent things like obedience. So what might it mean to love Him? Well, I think in short, it, it can't mean any less than taking Jesus at His word. To, to believe in Him, to, to receive Him wholeheartedly. What might these commandments look like? Well, if, if you go through the book of John, you'll notice that John hasn't recorded many ethical, moral commands from Jesus. It's actually quite staggering how few there are. But what He has done a lot is given you a lot of commands of Jesus that sound like this. Receive me. Hear my words. Feed on me. Come to me. Follow me. Believe in me. Believe in God. Soon he's going to say, abide in me, abide in my word, receive the Holy Spirit. To the crippled man, he said, rise and walk. To Lazarus, he said, come out of the tomb. These are Jesus' commands, and those who love him keep his commands. What do all these commands have in common? They all involve trusting Jesus, taking Jesus at his word, throwing yourself onto him and his way, and recounting your own way. Essentially, it's walking by faith. That's the power for obedience, faith. At the heart of keeping His commandments is taking Jesus' words to heart. Now, why on earth would you want to take His words to heart? Well, because of who He is. He's the divine Son of God. He's the most loving person who ever existed. You've seen who He is. You've encountered His miracles. You've heard His teaching. He, he's going to pour out His love for you on the cross. And when you see with clarity the love that Jesus has for you, it will evoke and respond in you a love to Him. It's reciprocal. Loving Him, friends, is in response to Him first loving us. That must be so clear this morning. You know, when couples get married, you often hear stories about who made the first move. And, you know, if it's not the guy, then there's a bit of shame on him for being a bit of a coward. You know, when it comes to relationship with Jesus, you ask the question, well, who made the first move? And if you have, well, I was the initiator in this whole thing, you're going to feel a bit of pressure to, to keep it up. But if God was the initiator, if God was the first mover, if he was the instigator, there's confidence about this relationship that you've now entered into. Jesus is in this upper room. And he's saying, I'm I, showing his love to these disciples. He, he, he's the first one to wash their feet, picturing what he's going to do through the cross. He's loving them to the greatest extent and intensity. He's, he's modeling this kind of self-giving, God-glorifying, other-centered love. And these disciples have been encountering it, and they're encountering it now with, with intensity. So much so, John 13, 40, he said, 34, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. So love from Jesus to us is the ground and our motivation to love one another, but it's also the ground and motivation to love Him in response. 1 John 4, 19, we love because He first loved us. Or Romans 5, 8, Paul makes it clear, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He made the first move. So make no mistake, God initiates love to us. Our response then is to love and to obey. Obedience in that context becomes a mark of those who love Him, not a condition for earning such love. It's not like you're doing a, um, a secret Santa gift exchange in this, in, this, in this text, where we give love and obedience, and as a result, He gives us the Holy Spirit, and when you don't love or you don't obey, He takes the Spirit away from you until you then love and obey again, and He gives you the Spirit back. That's not the dynamic that this is happening in this text. The relational dynamic, the reality is those who have been loved by God 
in response to love of God, love Him in return, and obey and treasure His words. That's the kind of impact it has on you when you you truly encounter the love of God. It's that unconditional love that... um, and patience from a local pastor in New York City. Him and his wife, for over two years, welcomed this, this uh, woman into their home. She was a New York City lesbian activist professor. But because of the unconditional love shown by this family, she was welcomed into a place and experienced a kind of warmth, a hospitable hospitality. And in return, she became, she became a Christian. Their works supported their words, and as the words of Christ met her heart, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, converted, and now lives for Jesus. Unconditional love. It changes you. To love Him then, again from Piper, is to desire Him because He is infinitely desirable. It is admiring Him because He is infinitely admirable. It's treasuring Him because He is infinitely valuable. It's enjoying Him because He is infinitely enjoyable. It's being satisfied with all that He is because He is infinitely satisfying. It is the reflex of the awakened and newborn human soul to all that is true and good and beautiful embodied in Jesus. Friends, our love to Jesus isn't a kind of love that compensates for His deficiencies, as if He was lonely and He was needing someone to love Him. He doesn't need that kind of love from us. Our love to Him is appropriately responsive to how great and glorious He is. Charles Spurgeon, old Baptist minister, he once had a lady in his congregation. She came to him and she said, Minister, I am confident of my love for Jesus, but I'm not sure of Jesus' love for me. Spurgeon responded by saying, You may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit not a root. It did not get there by the force of any goodness in you. You may conclude with absolute certainty that God loves you if you love God. There was never any difficulty on his part. It was and always has been on your part. And now that the difficult is gone from you, there there is no more difficulty left. Oh, let our hearts rejoice and be filled with great delight because the Savior has loved us and given himself for us. The Savior, Jesus, has come to dwell in our hearts. He's come to be with the people and in response, they love him. Have you thought about this as true for Christ? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit residing with you. I just wonder this past week, what would it have looked like if you were consciously aware of who was in the room of your heart, how might things have been different? Would you picture it kind of like an an authoritarian teacher? Kind of like when the principal walks in the classroom and the students kind of sit up and behave better? Well, if that's your view, you're you're not viewing the God of the Bible here. Or maybe you feel like the, having the presence or, or God, and if, if, if God the Father and, and God the Son stepped into the room to you, it kind of gives you that feeling when you're driving and the police lights go on. You haven't done anything wrong, but you're, just, you're concerned that you've done something wrong. Now, that's not the picture either. It is in the, in the loving context of relationship that the Father and the Son come to dwell with you. If you would indulge me for a moment to consider them as roommates, who come to live with you, be amongst you. You see in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father. What beautiful promises here. Jesus is pouring out promise upon promise to these disciples and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Manifest, that is to show myself to him. That's the promise that Holy Spirit is going to pour out the triune love of God into their hearts as we love Him and keep His words. We get the God dwelling amongst us. So imagine for a moment you have the Son, the Spirit, and the Father dwelling amongst you. And a friend comes along and he asks, who, who is the new roommates? Who, who's this? And you say, oh, that's God the Father. He planned my salvation from eternity past to have me as part of His redeemed people for all eternity. He's the Holy One of Israel. 
He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Oh, he seems like a, he'd be good to have around. And who's that? Oh, that's God the Son. He was sent by the Father to obtain the righteous life that I could not live. Then he died a death that I deserved to die because of my sin. And then he offers forgiveness freely. This Jesus is showing me compassion and mercy, and he's preparing a place for me. It's amazing. He's the best housemate you could ever imagine. Oh, and who's that? Oh, that's God the Holy Spirit. He proceeds from the Father. He's sent by the Son to be my comforter, my helper, my advocate from condemnation, my counselor against temptation. He leads and guides me in truth. I don't feel orphaned. I don't feel alone. I feel comforted and loved. He helps me see the Father and the Son in all their beauty and all their wonder and all their glory. Now, are these roommates living with you, dwelling in the room with you? Now, can we think back? Can we think back to Monday morning last week? Can you think back to your commute? Can you think back to difficulties you faced last week? Ask the question, who is in the room with you? Church, you are not alone. Let us set each foot, let's set foot out on this day and think how the ministry of truth by the Spirit, which is mediating the presence of the Father and the Son, manifesting His glory to us and love to us, impacts the way we live and relate to God and to others. I think this will shape how we face temptation. I think this will impact how you deal with stress. I think this will impact the way you face issues and complications, handle worry and anxiety and trouble. Who is in the room? Who's dwelling amongst you? The Father, Son, the Spirit. We are not alone. So church, bring such realities to our conscience, mind. Bring them to bear. Holy Spirit's going to inflame these truths in our hearts, part of His ministry. In fact, Paul would say in Ephesians 3, he's going to pray for strength, that the church would be strengthened in order to actually handle the love of God that wants to be poured out to them. That's a big prayer. Oh, ones, how many acts of disobedience may, at their root cause, be a lack of knowing or ignoring or abandoning or undervaluing the love that the Spirit wants to show us. Let us return in communion with the Holy God who dwells in us and so grow in our obedience to Him. Our obedience shows our love for Jesus, but love for Jesus will grow our obedience. So be encouraged. Remember Jesus' words here to His disciples, they are a comfort, they are not a threat. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Peter says, but I called you Satan once. You'll love me and you'll keep my word. James and John, he's like, hey, well, I've got a habit of calling down fire from heaven on people I don't like. But you'll keep, you'll love me and keep my words. Thomas says, I doubt. Jesus says, I'll come and I will help you believe, receive, and obey. To these disciples specifically here, he says these comforting words, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. I think the day that Jesus has in mind here is explicitly referring to the days directly after his resurrection when he appeared to his disciples. This is the, the moment when it kind of all clicks into place. Things line up. They see the resurrected Jesus, and his appearance does something deep in their bones, that Jesus was who he said he was. He is in the Father. And that he, because he's in the Father, this means that they, they will have the same kind of relational unity with Jesus, just like Jesus has with the Father. Secondly, it also means, he says, because I live, you also will live. Because they saw the resurrected Jesus. It was the signpost, the verification, the announcement that they too will live. Jesus invites them into a life of love and intimacy. Now, I think this extends by implication to those disciples of Jesus today. We may not have visually seen the resurrected Jesus, but we encounter the true person of Jesus through the word of his gospel and in the person of the Holy Spirit. We can see and understand who he is. Where does this leave us for this morning? Well, let me conclude by having us think about the question. A common question that maybe we would ask is, am I loved by Jesus? 
might ask that question, am I loved by Jesus? To which the Gospels are going to point us and this New Testament is going to point us to the cross. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. For God so loved the world, John 3, 6, and that He gave His only Son. You want to know the definitive answer to the question, does Jesus love me? Look at the cross. That's your answer. But maybe a less common question that we need to ask this morning is not, am I loved by Jesus? But am I loving Jesus? Am I loving Jesus? We, we at least need to ask this question, I think. See, the first category is a person who, who actually does not objectively love Jesus. A person who does not receive His words, does not know or see, receive the Holy Spirit. Think to Judas, Judas in verse 22, not Iscariot, which is brilliant clarification. He said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So Judas is trying to piece together, how is it that you're going to do your saving work, but like not everyone's going to notice? Because he's working off the Old Testament, his select reading of the Old Testament playbook that says, when the Messiah comes, boom, whoa, everyone will know who the King of Kings is. And, and Jesus' response is that, I'm going to pour out my love into the hearts of those who love me and receive me, and that, that's where I'll manifest myself. That's what Jesus is going to do it. People have taken Jesus at his words. But those who do not love Jesus and do not obey will not see him. Some might say, but can't I just say I love Jesus and let that be enough? Do we really need obedience? Isn't that anti-grace? Isn't the gospel about just professing your love for Jesus? Let's not get down to obedience. Let's not get too picky about you know, who's, whether we do or don't obey Jesus. Well, Name a friendship that survives when one person merely loves in words, but their actions show something completely different. No marriage is healthy when one person says, I love you, but then demonstrates no such love. In the same way, if you love God, if you love Jesus, it will look practical. It will be tangible. There will be a manifestation of love in action, not mere sentiment. I had a friend once say, you know, Christianity is just about loving God and loving others. I said, that's true. You've got it right. Do you know what that means? He says, well, it just, it's up to each person to decide. The Bible says no. We've given lots of commands of what it looks like to love. And that's what you'd expect. None of us come out the womb knowing how to love. We need to be taught, instructed. God in His kindness paves the way showing us through the Son, empowering us by the Spirit, what love looks like. So if you want to see Jesus this morning, the question is, do you want to obey Him? Obedience will show you love. Love will grow your obedience. Am I obeying Him? Is He precious to me? Has the Word of Christ so come to my heart that I receive it with gladness? Is, is the deepest position and posture of my soul inclined towards saying yes to Jesus? Or is it a constant battle where I don't really want to live this life? I'm just kind of adding moralistic framework on. Jesus says, no, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. When, what he commands, do you obey? When you sin, do you repent? Do you confess? See, after all, don't think this is obedience that's perfect. Taking Jesus at His commands means coming to Him when you blow it. Coming to Him daily, receiving His grace. There is an objective fellowship we have with God. Friends, there is a subjective experience of it. In the same way, you can, in, in like a marital relationship, you can be in one objectively and yet not be enjoying the experience of joy, intimacy, and relationships, so you can be objectively with God, but not be experiencing the warmth, the love, and the manifestation of His presence, especially when you're not walking in obedience. So let me plate this gently and pastorally to us. There may be other reasons that contribute to your lack of felt love from God. They may be psychological, physiological, mental, or emotional, or spiritual, kind of like the dark night of the soul. There might be some reasons that explain that. But surely we must at least consider if our relational distance that we experience from the love of God has something to do 
with our disobedience to him. God says, you'll see me in obedience. But are you neglecting his commands? God says, you'll find me in my word. But are we meditating on scripture? God says, you'll encounter me in prayer. Are we communing with him in prayer? God says, seek first my kingdom. But are you trying to make a name for yourself and build your own kingdom? You won't experience the love of Christ on the path of disobedience. We need to consider, are we obeying him? Again from Ryle, how is it people often ask that so many professing believers have so little happiness in their religion? How is it that many that so many know little of joy and peace in believing and go mourning and heavy-hearted towards heaven? The answer to these questions is a sorrowful one, but it must be given. Few believers attend as strictly as they should to Christ's practical sayings and words. There is far much, far too much loose and careless obedience to Christ's commandments. There is far too much forgetfulness that while good works cannot justify us, they are not to be despised. Let these things sink down into our hearts. If we want to be eminently happy, we must strive to be eminently holy. Do you want that, church? Do you want to be happy in God? Do you want to see the Father? Do you want to know the love of the Son? Well, in response to His love, walk in obedience to His Word. Chances are you're going to need help for this. Our self-assessment isn't going to be that, that clear sometimes. So this week, perhaps this means for us, you invite someone in to ask you a question. Say, can you ask me, is there anywhere in my life where I'm not obeying Jesus? And pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Ask them, do you see anything in my life where I'm not obeying Jesus? Let this be our house helping one another. We need that. And then we get to minister God's love and grace to each other, reminding us of the love the Father has poured out into our hearts and then helping us to obey on Him and love Him. Then we can receive these words as a promise, not as a warning. We can receive these words as hope. I do love Him. I will be able to obey His commands. I will obey Him. God, help us. See, the warning stands for those this morning that do not love Him, that do not obey Him, who do not have the Spirit, who cannot see the Spirit and cannot receive the Spirit. That's where the warning is. And so if that is you this morning, can I say to you that before any of us came to Christ in love and obedience, Christ came to the world to walk in love and obedience to the Father. Before any Christian here said, I will follow you, Jesus, Jesus says, I will follow the Father. And Jesus followed the Father all the way to death on a cross at Calvary, giving up his life for our sins so that we might be united to him and have God by faith dwell in our hearts. You may not have much of a home in this world, but the Godhead can make himself at home with you. You may struggle with obeying authority your whole life, but with Jesus, you'll be given a relational power to pursue that which is good and just and holy. So come to him. Receive his commands this morning. Come, turn from sin. Put your faith and trust in the risen Jesus. By God's grace, each of us will know and experience the Spirit's work in our life in increasing measure, in love and obedience. Let's pray.